Um, we're going to continue our series in Ezra and Nehemiah today. Um, and as a reminder of where we're at, um, just for some background, um, a group of Israelites have, have returned from exile um, where they were at in Babylon under the decree of Cyrus, and they're sent back to their homeland now um, with federal funds to rebuild God's temple. But after rebuilding the altar, they got that set up. That was exciting. After laying the foundation of the temple, they were met with opposition, and work on the temple stopped for a full 16 years. And last week, we learned that God, to kind of kickstart his people again, sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to stir up and encourage the people to start building again. It worked. Their, their message was heard. The people were invigorated, and they started once again to rebuild the temple. But just as Israel starts to get going again, just as they uh, have a renewed sense of vision and, and faithfulness in, in building the temple that God sent them back to build, they encounter potential threats and uncertainty. There's a new governor uh, uh, over, over the, the land beyond the, Jordan, or, yeah, beyond the river, which is uh, west of the Euphrates, which is where uh, Judea was. So he's a, a new sheriff in town, if you will. There's a new king on the throne uh, in Persia who, whose posture toward the Jews is unknown. Um, he may or may not be like Cyrus. He may or may not be for the Jews. So this is the situation that we enter in chapters 5 and 6. It's a time of uncertainty as Israel begins in obedience to rebuild the house of God. It's in this time of uncertainty that we'll see that God decrees all things. And because of that, Israel can carry on in obedient faith. Perhaps today you're, you're facing uncertain times. Um, you might be job hunting, and you're not sure if you'll ever find a job that you're going to enjoy. <laughs> it's uncertain. Maybe you're trying to decide where to move next. Your family's growing, or something has changed in your life, and, and you don't know where to go. Denver's expensive, and you're trying to figure out what next step to take. Maybe you're wondering about the future of your family, or or of our little church, what's going to happen here over the next few years? Or the direction of our broader culture? It's in times of uncertainty that we must realize that God is in sovereign control of everything. That's the truth that bolstered uh, Israel to be obedient, and it's the truth that, that will help us press on day to day in faithfulness to do what God has called us to do. God sovereignly rules over all, and so we can carry on in faith. And today we're going to consider that truth, consider the truth of God being sovereign over all as we consider the events of Ezra uh, chapters 5 and 6 as they unfold in three scenes. And those scenes are an unsettling investigation, a favorable outcome, and a joyful celebration. Before we begin, we're just going to pray uh, for God's help as we consider, um, consider his words. So let's do that together. Lord, we need you. We need your spirit to be active. He is present. We need him to fill us afresh, to give us eyes of faith, to, um, to see what you have for us today, to see what your, um, what your holy word um, has to communicate to our hearts, what you want us to learn about you. So, Lord, I do pray that you would open our eyes, Lord, that you give us hearts ready to receive what you have to teach us, Lord, and that you would encourage us and make us more more hope-filled in the, in the God that we serve. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, we're just going to 
jump right in and consider the first scene, which is an unsettling investigation, an unsettling investigation. We learn about this uh, from chapter 5, primarily in verses 3 and 4. So let's read that. Ezra 5, verses 3 and 4. It says, At the same time, so as they're starting to rebuild, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? So Israel's started rebuilding the house of God, and they're, they're making good progress. Um, and this, this is no small project. Um, in, chapter, in verse 8, rather, of uh, chapter 5, we learn that they're hauling huge stones and timber. And so you've got Tatnai, the governor of the land. He, he has jurisdiction over Judea. And so he has this responsibility of knowing what's going on uh, in his land. And, and, and this project is big. It prospers. And he's wondering, okay, is this thing sanctioned or not? Is this... Um, is this an approved building project? Are th- There's a lot of revolt going on in the Persian kingdom at this time. A lot of people recently uh, quelched, I think, down in Greece. Um, and so you, you've got people wondering, you're building something really large and massive. Is that okay? Is the king going to be okay with that? He's accountable to the king of Persia, and he wants to know if there's a massive unauthorized building project going on in his land. So it makes sense. So he goes to the Jews with some questions, and then he sends a detailed report to King Darius um, to ask what to do. And the questions that they ask the Jews are if, whether or not they have permission to rebuild the house, and then they also ask for the names of the leaders who are building the house. Now, this could have been a really scary thing for the Jews. Right now, at, at surface level, it just seems like they're asking for some information. But honestly, this could be really terrifying. The last time that the people of Israel were confronted by the people of the land about building the house of God, they were opposed They were accused, accusations were sent to the kings of the time, and eventually they were stopped by force, by command of the king saying, this is a city of revolt, this has a history, uh, you know, so they thought, of people rising up and and not paying tribute to the king. So so they're being being confronted again by the people of the land, by Tatanai and and his associates. Also, their, their names are asked for. Uh, I think this, this gets especially frightening um, because these names are going to be reported to Darius. And, and he recently gained the throne of Persia just two years earlier. Okay, so your names, you're being held accountable. They're asking for your names. King Darius knows who you are and that you're building this huge, massive project. And if he doesn't like it, guess who he's going to come after? The people whose names are written down. What is this king like? Well, we, we learn in the next chapter that apparently... Darius is not scared to make decrees where punishment for disobedience included your house being demolished and you being publicly executed. Okay, that is, he makes a decree in the next chapter. That's the punishment for disobedience. So this, this guy is serious. He's willing to pull out the big guns, if you will. Okay, so this was the king to whom the builders are going, uh, the names of the builders were going to be reported in the governor's investigation to the king. So that, that has got to be frightening. The Jews must have been tempted to fear the unknown and must have been tempted 
to just stop working, to, to play it safe, to back down, to not want to, to, to rake up the mud, if you will. They would have been tempted to fear the governor's investigation or the king's response to that investigation. But rather than being controlled by fear, as they're being strengthened by Haggai and Zechariah, prophesying the name of God, saying, continue to do the work that God has called you to do. He's with you. So rather than being controlled by fear, they instead continue in faith. They carry on in obedience. They trust God with the outcome. They don't know what's coming, but they press on in faithfulness. This reminds me of the book, The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. It's part of the Chronicles of Narnia. In it, three travelers, Jill Pohl, Eustace Scrub, and Puddleglum, a beloved Marshwiggle. If you don't know what that is, you've got to read the book. <laughs> I am going to give away some pretty important uh, points here, so I'm sorry if you haven't read it yet. But these three travelers, they're, they're commissioned by the great lion Aslan, who is this Christ figure. Uh, and, and they're commissioned to, to follow uh, a series of signs, four signs, the last and final sign, the fourth and final sign, was that the first person who asked them to do something in Aslan's name would be the person whom Aslan sent them to find, the lost prince of Narnia, Prince Rillian. Well, at the climax of the book, the travelers find themselves uh, in the same room uh, as this man who appears to be bewitched and completely insane. He looks like this raving lunatic who's ready to kill them. It's frightening. He's bound to a chair for the safety of the travelers, and he rattles off all sorts of pleas to be freed. He's trying to get free. And then, to the traveler's surprise and dread, he adjures them to be freed in the name of Aslan. And now the travelers have to decide. Do they stay safe by keeping the man bound? Or do they risk their lives by following the sign that Aslan gave them. The travelers debate it for a while. Then Puddleglum, who's often pessimistic, says this. Aslan didn't tell Pole, that's the girl, what would happen. He only told her what to do. That fellow will be the death of us once he's up, I shouldn't wonder. But that doesn't let us off following the sign. Lewis is a good writer. <laughs> In the face of uncertainty and probable doom, the travelers decided to follow Aslan's word. The same is true of the Jews here. They had been commissioned by God to rebuild the temple, and they, they didn't have any guarantee, though, that this new governor or this new king would be favorable towards them. This really might be the death of them. But rather than playing it safe and stopping the work, they press on, trusting God for whatever outcome comes their way. God, or God, <laughs> believers, this is what God has called all of us to. He gives us his commands. It's clear what we are to do. But we don't always know what following them is going to mean for us. When we tell someone about the gospel, we don't know how they're going to respond, if they're going to gladly accept it and be added to the kingdom, or if they're going to be offended by it. But by faith, we step out into the unknown. We, faith looks like stepping out into the unknown, trusting 
God with the outcome, not being worried about the outcome. Or when we have the opportunity, as opportunities come with safe families, which you'll hear a little bit more if you haven't already next week, you'll hear a little bit more. It's a program for helping families in need, coming alongside them. As we have opportunities to, to, to come alongside families, we don't know the outcome of those relationships that we'll be investing in. Relational investment it's, it, is a risk, but it's one that honors God because it trusts Him with the outcome. God is glorified when we press on in faith because success isn't measured by outcomes. It's measured in obedience. And yes, I stole that from safe families, so credit to them. But it's true. Success isn't measured by what happens at the end of what we do. Success is measured when we say, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just going to take the next step. I'm going to talk to that person about Jesus. I'm going to help this family in need. I'm going to say no to this temptation to sin. I'm going to be patient to this little child for one more day. I don't know what the outcome is, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do what you've told me to do. That honors God. So the Israelites continue on in faithfulness. But what happens next? Well, the author continues in verse 5. He reports, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. The Jews continue building. They're not stopped by the governor, but they are, in fact, allowed to rebuild until a resolution is determined by the king. Now, notice here the perspective of the author. He doesn't merely just say that the, the Jews weren't stopped and they kept rebuilding. He makes note that the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop. That is, God was active in ensuring that the Jews weren't stopped as they rebuilt his house that he had set them to build. It's an invisible, the fact that God's eye is on them is an invisible historical reality. But it can only be seen through the eyes of faith. This makes me think of the summer I spent in Austin, Texas. Um, one evening, I joined some friends to go down uh, to see the famous bat colony, um, which uh, lives, uh, apparently it's like one and a half million bats. I mean, there's a ton of bats that live uh, under this, this bridge that spans the Colorado River, and at dusk they come out. It's, it's magnificent. So as we went down there, as the sun got lower and lower, my friends were starting to excitedly mention all the, the bats that they could see. But for all, for all the people that could see them, I couldn't. I was looking where they were looking, but I couldn't see them. I kept asking, wait, okay, where did you see it? And they're like, well, it's like, it's everywhere. It's like, right over there. So I'm looking. I, I get the, the slightest glimmer of movement. Every once in a while, my eye would pick up on something, but I couldn't see these bats, all these bats that people were claiming to see. And then, all of a sudden, I could see them. There were thousands of them. It was, now I could see why people were ooing and aahing. It was incredible. There were thousands of bats flying over, over the river, it was truly remarkable. One moment, my eyes couldn't distinguish between, it happened to be that the gray color of the bats and the gray dusk sky were so close that my eyes couldn't distinguish the difference between them. And then the next moment, all of a sudden, my eyes finally adjusted, 
And I could just see bats everywhere. So it is with faith. Without the eyes of faith, we move along in life being unaware of the myriad of invisible ways that God is at work. We're like me and Austin, unable to see the thousands of bats flying just over our heads. But when God opens our eyes, and as we strive to see him at work, we start to realize that he is everywhere, working all things for the good of his people and the glory of his name. The author of Ezra had this perspective. He realized and he believed the invisible reality that God's eye was on the people as they built the temple. It wasn't just like in some book that was written down. The decrees are written down. Other historical facts, these are visible things you can see. But he has to see with the eye of faith. It's not just human instances and and, and chronology playing itself out in human history. God's eye is on the people. And that is why they can continue on to do what he's called them to do. The, The author interpreted the events around him as the handiwork of God. And we too must realize and and believe that God is at work in in invisible ways all around us. We must trust that that he is at work even when we can't see him at work. So when you're at your job, God's at work, whether or not you see him at work. When you're parenting your kids, God's eye is upon you. He's watching you. He's at work. As you study for your next exam in school, God orchestrates all of history for your good and his glory. And here's an encouragement. As for as much as we want to see God at work, as much as we want to train our eye to look for the ways that he's at work, even when we can't see him at work, he's still working. That doesn't change who he is. Much of what God does, we cannot see, but that doesn't make it any less real. Like the thousands of bats overhead in Austin, God's at work in a thousand ways, whether we see them or not. Me seeing them didn't make the bats there. They were there. But finally, when I could see them, though, my eyes were open, adjusted. It was amazing to behold. So let's keep our eyes open. Let's look for how God is at work in the day to day. Let's train our eye to see and to interpret the events around us as the handiwork of a sovereign God who cares for his people and glorifies his name. We're going to be far more encouraged if we do that. Faith, that sort of faith isn't necessary for God to be at work in that sense. He's going to do what he will do. But if we have faith, we're going to be a whole lot more hopeful and joyful people because we're going to see him at work. And we can help one another with this. Oftentimes we're blind, I think, most readily to how God's at work in our own lives. Uh, I am. I, I'm, I'm so quick to just think there's zero evidence of God's grace in my life, period. And, and that's the enemy, right? That's the enemy trying to tear me down and, and make me believe lies and not you know, look more at me rather than at the God who is faithful to me. And so I need other people to come alongside me and go, hey, Todd, I noticed this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know what? You're right. That, the human Todd wouldn't do that. That's the spirit of Jesus within me. So let's do that for one another. Let's look for ways at which God is at work and then tell each other. We have to point it out. Let's help each other uh, train our eyes to see the ways at which God is at work. So the future is uncertain for the Jews. They don't know what's going to happen, yet they carry on 
with this eye of faith, trusting God to work in invisible ways. But we want to know what happens, right? <laughs> we want to know the outcome of the governor sending word to the king. What's the king's response to this building initiative? Well, we find out in the next scene, which brings us to the second scene, a favorable outcome. When Tatanai questioned the Jews regarding the temple building, the Jews responded truthfully that the former king Cyrus had decreed them, uh, decreed rather that they rebuild the house of God. So Tatanai uh, relays that their claim to King Darius, and he asked the king to look into it, determine if, if, if this claim is, is true or not. Okay, so he re relays that claim to Darius. What does Darius do? Well, his reaction is recorded in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Let's read that. It says, Then Darius the king, so after he gets this letter, here's what he does. Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found. So Darius obliges Tatanai, and, and he commands that search be made to determine if such a decree was in fact made by Cyrus. The scroll is found. We learn from the following verses that its contents completely support the claim of the Jews regarding the rebuilding of the temple, uh, down to the very details of the huge stones and the timber with which they built, that was probably a concern to Tatanai, the governor, wondering what's this massive project. Well, even those details are in the scroll. Now, note a few things here. This might seem like a commonplace event. This is where we get to train our eye to see God at work. First, Darius decides to make the search. He didn't have to do that. He had no obligation to do that. Um, Tatanai, the governor, asked him to, but he's a governor. This is king of Persia. I mean, he's... He's like at the, at the peak of, of the Middle Eastern uh, reign of, of this time. So he makes the search, okay? For, that's the first thing. Second, he makes a decree for said search. Remember, they didn't have electronic databases in 6th century B.C. Persia, right? They couldn't just do a quick Google search. Did Cyrus decree this thing? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay? This search was an undertaking, it required not just some command, it required a full-blown decree by the king of Persia to put forward the resources necessary to actually do this search. So he makes the decree. Third, the search was initially made in the province of Babylonia. Okay, It says in the house of the archives. That's probably in Babylon. That's where uh, the governor asked the king, hey, could you search in Babylon, which is one city within Babylonia, for this, for this archive. Like, do we have, you know, do, do we have a copy of this decree? So it's made in Babylonia, but the scroll isn't found in Babylonia. The scroll is found in the northern province of Media in a city called Ekbatana. That is nearly 300 miles north of Babylon. That's, that's no small distance, guys. That's about the width of Colorado, okay, but back in a day where they didn't have motor vehicles, right? So this, this scroll is found in a very distant area. Okay, that's the third thing to notice. Fourth, the scroll that was eventually found, it, it actually had enough detail to support and to fully vet the Israelites' campaign. It, it makes clear even that Cyrus's decree called for funding from the royal treasury. That's something that even the Israelites, when they were giving a report to the governor, when he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? What kind, do you have a decree for this? Where's your building permit, so to speak? Um, they go... 
I mean, they, they give him some details, but they, they don't say, or at least he doesn't report to Darius, that it was federally funded. They kind of, they're not necessarily willing to, to push the envelope. They just, we're allowed to bill, right? Well, this scroll actually says, you know, in fact, there's federal funds involved here. Uh, taxes are supposed to be used for this building project, okay? Fifth, this scroll documented events, documented events from 18 years ago. We can forget that time frame as we're just quickly reading through Ezra, right? 18 years ago, guys, two changes to the throne have happened since then. There was Cyrus, there was somebody else, I forget his name, and then there's Darius, okay? There was no guarantee that this record survived in the first place. Again, they don't have digital databases. These are, these are things written on parchment. Or, or even if it did survive, there was no guarantee that they were going to find it. I mean, it's one scroll among how many buried deep in some archive land 300 miles from the capital of Babylon? And yet God, in, this, in his sovereignty, causes this scroll to be written back then, archived successfully, searched for by King Darius, and finally found, even though far away. And this scroll included everything needed to validate the claims of the Jews as they rebuilt the temple of God. So once again, the, the invisible hand of God is at work. We might just read, a scroll was found. Cool, that makes sense because these things happen. No, God is ensuring that his purposes are preserved. He orchestrates history to carry out his plan. He's sovereign over the tiniest details of our lives. I'm often quick to believe that God is at work in the extraordinary parts of our lives, right? That makes sense. When I'm sharing the gospel with someone, I feel a fresh feeling of spirit. I'm like, here we go. Or I'm counseling a friend and it's hard to know what to say. Or, or I'm starting a new job and I feel fresh faith to just be a, a light to Christ. I think, yeah, God's at work in those moments, right? In the big moments. But functionally, I often fail to believe that God is at work in the seemingly mundane things. How could he be at work with a scroll being found? <laughs> I can think he's absent on Monday mornings when I'm just trying to wake up and get to work on time and, and barely finding any time to get in the Word, if I do at all. And yet, God is as much involved in the small moments as he is in the big ones. We heard about that last week. Do not despise the day of small things. God is a God just as much of the small days as he is of the big days. So let us not think that God is absent in the finer details of our lives. He is present on Monday mornings. That's good news. <laughs> He's actively at work when we're tired and ready for our afternoon nap. We've got that. What's your 2.30 feeling like? If you've seen the ad. <laughs> He's, he's at work. He's advancing his kingdom, even as we're just traveling from home to school or to work or to our next doctor's appointment. God moves his kingdom forward, and nothing is going to stop it. He orchestrates all of history to preserve his people and to fulfill his promises. No detail is too small. No day is too mundane for the Lord to advance his kingdom. But once this scroll is found and read to King Darius, how does he respond? With overwhelming support. Regarding the temple building, he commands Tatnai and his associates in verse 6 to keep away. Let the work of this house of God alone. In other words, don't interfere. 
But more than that, he adds his own decree supporting the venture. In verse 8, he commands Tatanai to use local funds that Tatanai had, had control over, local taxes, use that money to fund the temple construction. In verse 9, he commands Tatanai to not only fund the construction, but then to perpetually provide all the animals and all the food required for the day-in and day-out service of the temple priests. In verse 11, he establishes the death penalty for anyone who alters this edict. And in verse 12, he even calls upon God himself. King Darius calls upon God himself to judge anyone who opposes the building of this temple or anyone who tries to destroy it. This is amazing. The king that the Jews were tempted to fear ended up providing overwhelming support to what God had called them to do. The governor who initiated this unsettling investigation ended up being the financial means by which they would actually finish this building project. Friends, though we never know for sure the earthly outcome of our obedience, we can trust that we have a God who loves to bless and reward us for following him in faith. Oftentimes, there is a happy ending. (laughs) Oftentimes, God does work things out in glorious ways. To return to the story about the travelers in the silver chair, the travelers, after freeing this seeming madman at, 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 at the command of Aslan as they were being obedient, they didn't end up being killed when he was set free. Instead, they ended up discovering that he was indeed the lost prince of Narnia. And he became their great ally and friend. Friends, let us not forget that we serve a God who loves to bless us as we obey him. So even as we plod along in, in daily faithfulness, let us not have small thoughts of God who, according to Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. He can do more than we, not only can, he does do, he's able to do more than we ask, more than we even think. He made the heart of Darius favorable to the Jews. He can do whatever he wants. So when we gather to pray on Wednesday nights, which is going to start in October, 7 p.m., when we gather to pray, let us pray with faith. Let us believe that God is truly both able and willing to answer our prayers. Let's consider with fresh faith what God might do through the next conversation that we have with our neighbor or or a coworker about Jesus. Let's expect him to do something good. Let's believe that God is truly able to help us find freedom from a besetting sin. He is able. He wants to bless us. He wants to reward obedience. As the hymn exhorts us, ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with his love he befriend thee. He has befriended us. God is for us. Who can be against us? Let us not think small thoughts of God. Even as we do small acts of obedience, let us have hope and expectation that God can do whatever he wants. Let us pray with that expectation. The king in this case responded favorably. The governor obeyed quickly and the people rebuilt successfully. 
verse 14 reports that they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So over the, the decree of Cyrus, who initiated this venture, over the decree of Darius, who revitalized the project, and over the decree of Artaxerxes, who later would beautify the temple, over all these decrees was the decree of the God of Israel. He's the one calling the shots. If we ever have success, if, we, if ever our obedience turns out, to be, turns out in victory, it's because, God, it's because the God of Israel has decreed it. So trust in the God who decrees all things and praise him for every success that he gives you. That's what the Jews did. They praised God. And that brings us to the final scene of, this, of these chapters, which is a joyful celebration. Verse 16 tells us that when the temple was completed, the people celebrated the, the dedication of the house of God with joy. It says later in, in, uh, in, the, in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 6 that God filled them with joy. It could have been easy for them to not be joyful here. For one, it took them still four more years to complete this building project. So they could have just been tired. Even after 16 years of, of no building, four years, of, they still got to press on. They still have to build the building. Slow progress. Um, the building once finished was still far less impressive than uh, Solomon's temple. They could have thought, well, okay, yeah, we finished it, but like, it's, it's okay, right? They, they could have been discouraged that out of all 12 tribes of Israel that God had called to himself, only three were represented here, Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. That's the only names of the tribes that we get from people coming back from the exile. And yet, Verse 17 tells us that they offered as a sin offering for all Israel 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. Even as they celebrate this small victory, they, they do so with the eye of faith, believing that God would be faithful to all of his promises, to all of Israel, and bring a full restoration one day. This is a partial victory, a partial restoration. They celebrate and look forward to a full restoration. And God would eventually fulfill his promises through his son Jesus, who would gather his church, his assembly, through the ministry of the 12 apostles from every tribe, tongue, and nation and language. The Jews also celebrate the Passover in the next month, the beginning of their new year. And this Passover commemorated the salvation that God had accomplished way back uh, uh, when, when the Israelites were uh, captives to Egypt. It goes, heralds all the way back to that. And the first Passover, when Israel was, was about to be delivered out of Egypt, nine plagues has happened. They're, they're about ready to, to be freed. Um, this, this tenth plague is, is, is um, promised and threatened that God is going to come and destroy the firstborn in the land. The Passover lamb was a means by which God enabled Israel in obedience and in faith, to dodge the judgment of God. The Passover lamb was slaughtered in the place of the firstborn so that God would pass over the houses of, of his people as he judged Egypt by killing their firstborns. And now, after the dedication of this new temple, Israel 
slaughters a single Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, remembering the past salvation that God had won for them. What's the appropriate response to God? To the God who decrees and gives us victory. It is to celebrate. Celebrate his current goodness. Thank him for what he's doing right now, even if it seems small. And to worship him for the past salvation that he has accomplished. The church, the new Israel, has a Passover lamb who is always worth celebrating. And that is Jesus Christ. He died on a cross in our place so that God's judgment would pass over us and instead fall on him. That is what we get to remember, believers, as as we experience victories, even as we experience loss. We have the hope of the gospel. We have the truth of God's prior salvation, and we should never grow tired of worshiping God for all that he's accomplished for us in Christ. When the Lord gives us victories in this life, let's praise him for those, but let's also never stop worshiping him for the salvation that he's granted us through Christ. The entire goal of God having his people rebuild the temple, which they were successful in, was that they might worship him. And he's committed to that goal. God is committed to the worship of himself. He makes decrees in heaven that govern the course of human history for the exaltation of his name. He organizes every detail of your life and of my life to help conform us more and more into the image of his son. And he works in a million ways that we cannot see to bring him glory and to bring us joy. So we can carry on. We can carry on trusting in a God who decrees all things. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would, in fact, give us faith to carry on, faith to take on the next day, the next hour, the next act of obedience, trusting, Lord, that you are in control of absolutely everything, in control of the outcomes of all of our actions, Lord, trusting that you are going to, pr- to provide and fulfill all of your promises fully through Christ, or we might get little tastes and glimmers of, of you at work in this life, Lord, help us uh, uh, strive to, to strain our eyes, to, to look, to see um, just some of the millions of ways in which you're at work. Give us, give us those fresh moments of hope and faith um, in the day-to-day as we look forward to the ultimate day when you will bring in all your people uh, fully and perfectly to worship your son for eternity. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand.